is the, the brewery is um, the new the, the place where things can get tried out. So sustainable growing, sustainable foods, uh, organic foods have all found their way into the brewery because the person who is going to a brewery generally is, I don't know, more gifted in the tastes that they have, what they want to eat. And um, that's your argument that they're willing to they're, they're willing to try uh, more in different things. That's my argument. That's your thesis. That it's is. open to discussion. Now. Okay. And, and um, because of because brewers, um, because craft brewers are building these things, you know, from lost recipes and tr- willing to try different styles. Beer pairing in the restaurant is as, as important as, say, wine pairing. So it's not just about fish and chips and a crappy burger and stupid fries. It's, you know, it's a much more, it's a much more... Um, Bud bag of chips and a burger for three bucks. Exactly. <clears throat> unlike, <laughs> unlike, what was it? That, well, it's, it's interesting, just, you know, by comparison. So um, well, Two dogs, two beers, 20 bucks. Yeah, <laughs> and some nachos. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll just start, and we'll go from there, and we'll just make the bell go right away this time. Right away, instead of the normal banter. <laughs> you are listening to Beer School. We're here to help you and your friends learn to like more than one kind of beer. There's lots of beers to like. Some are made right down the street from where you live, and others have to travel halfway around the world just to get to you. Learn why beer tastes like it does, how other styles came about, and all the sustainable parts you might use to build your community. The best part about beer school is the homework. The homework. The homework is beer. And uh, that's what makes beer school beer school. I thought it was reading the labels. Reading the labels. No, that's how we come up with what the beer tastes like. We read what it says on the labels. Because John won't let us cheat and use a computer and look at the. Dude, we can't online. use a confuser because uh, we might spill beer on the confuser. Exactly, right? It's not a good thing. So, with us today in the the classroom is Dave McLean from Magnolia Brewing Company. He's the owner and brewer, head brewer. Yes, that's correct. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming all the way down, braving the baseball traffic. You, you sprung that on me. I didn't know that was happening. I didn't think it was going <laughs> to I didn't realize that today was a day game. The Giants played a nice, tight, fast game, so they were getting out by the time it was time to start recording. Usually it's much more crowded until later. Right. Um, the park is not the home of craft beer, but hopefully increasingly so. Huh? Well, they have, uh, they have Anchor Steam in the stands. In, in some the plastic pl- bottles. Yeah. That's a start. The only place that you can get plastic bottles of Anchor Steam. The other person in the studio, I mean, classroom today, <laughs> professor, <laughs> professor, is Bob Coleman, and Bob is a beer advocate, um, and um, well, I'm gonna well specifically him. a craft beer a, advocate. Yeah, a, a craft beer advocate. Somebody who, as long as I've known Bob, he's been an advocate of great beer. He's a beer judge. He's um, at the openings and tastings of different beers. Um, he's a beer writer for the Celebrator. Um, where where else? I mean, I'm, think, I'm missing all of your. Well, it's an extension of my professional life uh, as an attorney for 26 years and a um, a progressive business advisor, political advisor. It seems to me that healthy communities have a healthy appreciation of uh, of good lifestyles that include good food, good beer, 
and sustainable consumer choices of all kinds. And I think that discerning those choices is really important. So I try to make sure that people don't make choices that are against their self-interest. In the same way that I would advise them on certain um, political principles or ways of looking at at society or of government, I encourage them to look at their uh, behavioral choices, and that includes uh, food and beverage. So, for example, uh, spend a little bit more, get a better product. Not necessarily spend more. Okay. Sometimes you might spend less. That's one of the interesting things about it. Sometimes you want to spend more, but it may cost you less in the long run. You have to look at all the variables. Um, one of the cheapest beverage choices might be um, mixing your own sodas, okay. you know, but you wouldn't feed them to your kids all the time. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there are a lot of things. I mean, a, a lot of people view some of the better food and beverage choices as more expensive and therefore as elitist. But, you know, if you parse it out, it isn't necessarily elitist. But I'm getting ahead of myself right. here. This is well, supposed to be an introduction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, this introduction leads right into the conversation. I think that in, in researching the show, I found that that one of the biggest one of the biggest complaints about quote organic food or better food was that it had a greater cost and i'm thinking well you're drinking you're you're eating taquitos which are the cheapest <laughs> thing in the anyway might lead to healthcare costs yeah which might be more expensive in the long run because you're eating something that's basically starches and full of full of uh, trans fats and all the other things that go with that. And instead, you, if you change the vegetables, which are no more expensive than the box of taquitos, you'll have a, um, you'll have a better experience. Well, these choices, these consumer choices are very political choices, and people don't necessarily like to think of it that way. They have a sort of sour feeling about the P word, the political uh, aspects of things. But it's, um, it's unavoidable. And when... I had a hand in helping to found the current incarnation of the San Francisco Brewers Guild with Dave, who's co-founder, um, and the others. I mean, the idea was that um, we were going to try to highlight the um, qualities of um, buying locally and of supporting local companies that employed local people, that made choices that were respectful, that were um, where you would buy products and it wasn't just a transaction but a relationship where you might know the people and, um, and have a, um, a, um, a dialectic about the, about the values that the places would have. I think that you see that at, um, at Dave's establishment a lot. I mean, you basically see that, that it is part of the community and responsive to the community and the community rewards and supports it. So that was part of what that was about. When you start looking at the choices that people make for themselves and their families, that's, we, could, we could discuss that you know, for quite a while. Recently, and this is highlighted in today's Chronicle, which has a long article about slow food and farmer's markets in the food section today, which isn't the day that this is necessarily going to be listened to, so that would be uh, June 27th uh, is the, the issue I'm talking about. 2007. For 2007. We'll put a link up. Yeah, we'll put, pull the links out. I'll get on that yeah. since the intern's not here today. And I hate to give new eyeballs to the, <laughs> S- to the Chronicle and sfgate.com. Nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, they do capture one or two issues that relate to this subject and what we've been working on in craft beer as a movement. And that is that um, people are encouraged to make choices that 
support and sustain the things that they care about and that they can then return to in healthy ways. The very issue of elitism that we started the, sh- the show with comes up in this article where the founder of Slow Food, Carlo Petroni, wrote something about how this movement could be co-opted a little bit, could be perceived as elitist in certain, in certain um, um, manifestations of it. And I would, I would argue, I think it's important, maybe this will be a launching point for some uh, discussion today, but I would argue that there's a difference between moral elitism, where you might actually take a leadership position on something that would be worthwhile taking a position out front on, like the Bay Area often does this as an incubator for good new ideas. And economic elitism, where somebody's basically, you know, trying to steer you to buy something because of cachet, and it isn't necessarily good for you. So I think that to to tarnish the craft beer movement, or the slow food movement, or the sustainable agriculture movement, with that kind of elitist brush, doesn't reflect the fact that as moral elitists, we might be on the right track. That, that form of, uh, of um, avant-garde thinking could be very important. And, um, and look at it in the context, if I can take a second. Sure. The context of the success of the craft beer movement, Dave's going to have probably more figures on, on what that looks like, comes in the context of a green economy that's just surging. That's great news. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, you've got latest figures I looked at, was over $2 trillion of socially responsible investing. That's one out of every $9 invested in the U.S. is sort of greened a little bit in terms of social responsibility. And the uh, organic food movement figures that I looked at from a couple years ago, $10 billion and growing. In fact, the um, organic foods we're growing at a pace of up to 20% per year so I have some versus, sp- versus the actual regular food growth of 2 to 4% a year. So I have some specific numbers on this. And $6 billion a year in green building supplies. And it comes also in a context where wind energy is roughly comparable in cost to coal energy and, um, and um, photovoltaic energy uh, as well as tidal energy is being explored as alternative uh, energy sources. So in 1990, there was one bill, uh, the uh, revenues from organic food was roughly $1 billion. Um, Ten years later, it was $7.8 billion. And in 2005, it was $13.8 billion. And in 2006, it was $17 billion. So you look at that projecting out by 2010, there's 23 basically $24 billion of organic food. But it may be that this number is off because anytime when, a, when an economist does a projection like this, they're not taking into accountability or into account the, the bandwagon effect where it just becomes the demand and then so it becomes a four times bigger market. Yeah. And that, no, those numbers only presumably take into account truly organic, certified organic That's right. food. And that doesn't include the bigger umbrella of artisan-made um, – things made with love and passion according to sound principles and, and stewardship for the environment. And, you know, those, there's so many artisan products where, you know, take the farmer that just can't afford or doesn't want to get the certification, but they still don't use pesticides. They still uh, grow their produce the way that you would want them to grow it. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a huge component of the, of the sort of food and beverage industry of which that's true. Most brewers, that's true for most brewers because we're not not many of us are doing certified organic beers. 
Um, and yet they're all, you know, a lot of us are buying ingredients from small family farmers that make the malt and not grow the hops. And and, um, and so those numbers wouldn't be reflected in your numbers there. Right. Yes. Well, these were, these were just the numbers that I got, that I right. was able to pull from the USDA website. Sure. So, but, and they're it's really, bigger than that. They're yeah. really specific to the, the uh, organic label. Right. In human terms, it's what's really exciting, and this is great news, is that you can do really well by doing good. I think right. Dave's businesses are, uh, are uh, proof of that. And access to information about it uh, through blogs like this and podcasts like this and uh, Web 2.0 social networking just makes it a lot more accessible so people get the idea. And if they can't get to it physically, they can start it in their own areas. So I think that's great news. The, the bad news is that there's a lot of co-optation, as Dave alluded to, with labeling and organic labels that sometimes don't necessarily uh, represent best practices. And um, the legal limits are very relaxed on monopoly power, and that affects the distribution channels in in the beverage business Mm -hmm. in, in ways that we can talk about. And also... We're facing some irreversibility that John and I had discussed um, before the before the recording, and that irreversibility has to do with ge- genetically uh, modified organisms and uh, frankencorn, frankencorn, franken <laughs> franken barley. And I, I know from previous conversations with Dave, for example, that franken barley is um, a longtime industrial practice in in this industry. My concern is that. Um, despite the support of heirloom barley that Dave <laughs> does in his business, that because of the industrial practices um, um, filtering through the um, corporate farming community, that we may be the last generation to be able to taste barley that isn't quite so fertile and disease-resistant. <laughs> so, I mean, if we want to call our, our children's beer Monsanto beer, we might have to do so. So that, that's a concern. I think that people can, can start to think about doing something about that. After all, resistance to the um, uh, worst effects of industry go all the way back to the 19th century. So we've only had four generations to try to figure out how to stop it. And you never know if the franken-barley will – there will be franken-fungus that attacks all franken-barley very easily because it's all <laughs> exactly the same. Right. And I was also going to make a joke about how franken-barley I think was a Catskills uh, – vaudeville team back in the around the turn of the century (laughs) (laughs) i'm frank i'm barley well there's there's a success story in the bay area that i think that dave helped helped shape and in uh researching this i found that there was that that the that the nyman ranch goes back to the 1970s where these practices best practices for treating the animals on the farm uh came about but I know that uh, I had never heard of this place, this ranch, until uh, I started hanging out at Magnolia and the 21st Amendment. Yeah, both both places have supported Nyman Ranch for a long time. For I mean, I remember we switched to them in our first year, and, I, and the 21st Amendment, maybe right when it opened, was already using Nyman. Um, yeah, it's... it's uh, so much of it started around here in the Bay Area, and, and a lot of it can probably be traced back to you know Alice Waters and, and Shea Panisse and the, you know some you know early hippies that that wanted to, uh, for lack of a better category, wanted to you know know where their food came from, grow it themselves. It's a little bit of that you know the the back to the earth movement, back to the land movement. You know, start a farm, grow it yourself. Um, reconnecting with our agricultural, our agrarian roots, and getting a sense of you know, wow, there's there's a lot of lost 
culture, a lot of lost taste, you know, in these products that wasn't happening. And so a lot of, you know, if you do the homework and you trace, you know, the, the family tree back, a lot of it goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, to the Bay Area, and people who were experimenting with new ideals about, new old ideals, but res- resuscitating you know, old ideals that have been forgotten. Yeah, yeah. At the risk of sounding, uh, you know, when you have a subject like this, sustainability, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you start to sound like an old hippie or a granola <laughs> guy or a tree hugger. And, you know, I like the fact that some of those ideas from the 60s are vindicated now. Uh, they're economically vindicated as better ideas. Uh, big business has discovered it, and um, you really can't have a much of a positive view of the future of business for your big corporation unless you jump on the on the sustainability bandwagon right. at least at least um, at least uh, promotionally um, but going back to the 60s um, I think there was a do-it-yourself uh, sentiment that had to do with the beginnings of the internet as well the beginnings of personal computing um, the homebrew computer club for example right. um, gave rise to um, the um, beginnings of the HP and, and Apple computer stuff. And the, the whole Earth Catalog. And the whole Earth Catalog, the Foxfire right. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That went back to um, um, Appalachian folkways and, and stuff that the Beats were doing, stuff the Diggers were doing in San Francisco before that. That tree goes back and back and back and back. I would say it goes back to um, the beginnings of the uh, Industrial Revolution and reactions to that. I would I would say you can trace it back to the 19th century, late 19th century, Victorian times. Which is where Prohibition comes from, too, which was two shows ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, the, the reaction, no, it's the, it, was the, it was the political reaction to industrialization. So you got the arts and crafts movement in architecture and design that was trying to look at something that could be sort of industrial but not. But then you also got reactions to the growing industrial climate, and one of the negative ones was uh, temperance. Mm. But then you also got all the positive stuff that came out of that. Yeah. Well, the, the, um, the sense of loss on agrarian society was huge. I mean, after all, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, 90% of America lived on farms, now less than 2%. And we're very divorced from the actual you know, process of production of food. And I think that because brewing is an industrial process, to bring it back down to the scale where people can see where it's made and see how you do it and talk to the brewer is huge. It, it humanizes um, the, the, the production of food in a way that you, you rarely see unless you go to a farm. Right. I think that uh, taking it even a step further, it's, it's important. One of the things that people are just starting to realize even in the brewing community is that we've often characterized our own craft beer industry as an industrial process and it really is more of an agrarian process it is an agricultural product made from from you know the the earth and uh it seems like we may have done ourselves a little bit of a disservice over the years to sort of think of ourselves as as participants in an industrial process when really you know the the you look at belgium and the farmhouse breweries and the you know all the places where beer roots go uninterrupted back centuries and it's really much more of a there's very little that's industrial about it. It really is about crafting a product, you know, that's full of the uniqueness and diversity that can only come from one person's mind on one person's land. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it, at its core, is part of that same agrarian, that return to that, those agrarian ideals that we're talking about here. You know, even, even the mechanical aspects of making beer are just, you know, modern um, 
you know, modern advances in in a in a process that is at its core very much a natural process and a and a agricultural product that comes from it. As well, it should be. The, uh, I'm sure you've discussed in previous programs that the um, origins of civilization had to do with people's desire for this, you for know, this product. for this product. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a there's an article that we've talked about in that that modern society would not have got their act together if it hadn't been for the brewing process. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have made farms where they were growing grain specifically in rows. They wouldn't have figured out how the science of yeast worked. They wouldn't have figured out how to keep things fresh for a long time. None of this stuff would have happened if it wasn't for this need to make this product. And those adaptations and improvisations are so creative. They're endlessly fascinating, like um, like the, the variations of a jazz musician. And I've, I've talked to Dave about this. But on the artisanal level, it's so interesting that it's no wonder that beer fans will travel way out of their way to meet the brewers and, and, and sample special products. It's not, it's not surprising. It's like the uh, – it's, it's in a way like the way that the United States was before we got big boxes and fast food. <laughs> you used to be able to go from town to town to town and you would find the town's uniqueness, the clubs, the, the restaurants, the things that were sustainable within that community – uh, because of the local, because of the local farm, well, that's all disappeared with the with the advent of the of the uh, of trucking and moving around and having the same foods made in a in a factory and then pushed out to the people. You know, you can go to Des, you can go to Des Moines, Iowa, and you can go to Bismarck, North Dakota, and they they're nearly the same place. Mm-hmm. Well, also there's there's the aspect to to food where. I've said before I like quahog clams that come from Rhode Island. Right. But should I be able to have quahog clams here all the time or as part of the specialness being on the East Coast and having something that's only available there? And that's sort of like an ongoing debate. Should I get, you know, French cheese that grows in caves or is matured in caves? You know, how does this fit in? Well, and I think that I think they, that it's special to get them. I don't think that it's <coughs> I don't think that it's Sustainable to to ship the those clams across the country every time right. that somebody wants them. That's why I walk this beer here from the brewery. <laughs> well, one, one of the things about San Francisco beer, uh, since you you know have San Francisco beer related people on this program, is that San Francisco, you know, from its uh, from the well, I won't say from the beginnings because the beginnings were before the well before the gold rush, but uh, you know from our Euro beginnings. Our settled beginnings. Oh, from the beginning of San Francisco. From the beginning of San Francisco instead of Yorba Buena. Right. And here we are in the cove here. We're We're sitting in the water. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, um, the irreverent history of San Francisco, the um, make-money-quick history of San Francisco, the the break-the-rules history of San Francisco – and uh, but also something about the the tightness, the closeness, the intimacy of how people interact in San Francisco, um, all gives rise to this. I mean, we don't have the farms here anymore, but we're taking the raw ingredients and doing special things with them. And I don't want to be brazen about promoting the Brews on the Bay Festival, but there's a festival coming up where the Brewers Guild of San Francisco has exclusively San Francisco beers in a wide diversity of styles that I think exemplify the kind of creativity that we're talking about. What are the dates on that? Do you have them? September 8th and 9th, I believe. It's two days this year. It is two days. Wow. Yes. Saturday and Sunday. And it's on the, it's Jeremiah O'Brien it's on still? the SS Jeremiah O'Brien. The uh, last remaining Liberty ship that uh, was 
restored and they toot around on the bay and it it's i i've actually i've never been to bruce on the bay well, I've been not. on Jeremiah O'Brien for other for other events, it's, and it's something to go see. I mean, if you've been to San Francisco, you've been down to Fisherman's Wharf. It's the old ship tied up next to the submarine uh, at Pier Forty Five, I think it is, and uh, it's just a great opportunity to come out. And also, when you're out, the thing about Jeremiah O'Brien is you go. People traveled around the you know the Panama Canal around the equator on this thing, moving stuff back and forth, and the history of that ship, and then also the sort of the whole. The old maritime San Francisco and the beer thing is fun. Well, information is at sfbrewersguild.org. But rather than just promote it, I mean, I I hope that people listening understand that there are a lot of ways of accessing the San Francisco brewing culture. And uh, it's a special brewing culture. We'd like to see more visitors to San Francisco um, fall into that naturally. And we're trying to create opportunities for them, whether it's a city-sponsored event, a street festival in San Francisco. And we kind of have to, you know, fight back against very um, very large corporations in order to try to get our message out there. I but, like sitting in the bar at the Sheraton at Fishman's Wharf drinking a, drinking a Foster's and really feeling the, the flavor. Of the from city. Canada. No, we did a show on... on <laughs> That's not your Jordan. family, is it? No. <laughs> no. We did, we did a... Uh, we did a show on on uh, touring uh, San Francisco touring beer. San Francisco beer, and we sort of have my weak attempt at putting stuff together, like how you get to place what bus it's near. Uh, what would you do if you had, uh, you know, a day? What would you do if you had six hours? What would you do if you had all the time? Take the seventy one bus to Magnolia. Yeah, both Motor and I live in <laughs> the North. ATM, the ATM. We called it. It was the either the AT and T tour or the ATM tour. You go to Anchor, you go, you go to Tornado, and you go to either twenty one A or Magnolia if you have half a day. When Motor and I live in North Beach, and um, so we see a lot of tourists both in North Beach and Fisherman's Wharf. We've probably sat next to people drinking, you know, um, their familiar beers. Moretti. And they're, well, (laughs) uh, or Bud Bud Light in North Beach. And um, um, you, you see that people are reluctant to try something new, and you try to make a case that um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't eat a, uh, the same burger every day. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't want to see their kids eat the same, the same uh, Twinkie every day. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, no, we've part of part of the show. The nicest feedback we get is from people who go, "I listened to your show on this, and I actually tried a different beer, and I really like it now." You know, yeah, I, I broke great. out from my gas station beer, as I like to call it, and you know, got something interesting, and it actually is good, and they fly off in that trajectory. If you're listening in Omaha, even in San Francisco, you can go into a lot of restaurants and not see beers that you can't get in a 7-Eleven. And that should change. And the, the opposite of that is I, my, how much beer culture is there in a given area is go into the gas station and see what you can buy at the gas station or the 7-Eleven. And here you can get stuff that a lot of people would love to have at 7-Eleven or the gas station. Yeah, I think gas stations are a good barometer of culture anywhere you go. You go to New Orleans and you can get uh, great gumbo in a gas station. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> some of the best family secret recipes of things are sold and made at the gas station. So you really can use the the gas station as the barometer of... Well, yeah. if they set a limit on carbon emissions, perhaps in 10 years all their vehicles would run on gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> so... One of the unique things about Magnolia is that there's a diverse style of beer happening. And it's one of the only breweries that I know that has a continuous cask available. Yeah, that's that's one of my little near and dear to my heart things that, you know, I always knew if I opened a brewery I would 
give cask beer a lot of attention. And so we try. We do. We, we keep uh, as many as five cask beers on at once. That's incredible. And that just comes from my appreciation for the, the English brewing culture and the English pub culture in which English brewing exists, and uh, which I think touches on a lot of the community issues that you're bringing up here today. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of falling in love with that that world, uh, that style of brewing and the, and the way in which that beer is served. It, sure, it's the beer. You know, I, I like and identify with a lot of the flavors and ingredients used in English brewing and, and therefore cask beer. But a lot of it, too, is just the, the role that the pub plays in, in English culture. Um, you know, around those hand pumps and beer engines and cask beer in any great pub in England is a, an amazing, thriving community. And they all come together to share these, even just, just the concepts of it, the notion of, you know, this, this communal cask that everybody's kind of, you know, being served from at once. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that it's a living entity, you know, that the beer is very dynamic and always yeah. in a state of like flux. Like tomorrow it might be tomorrow different, be different. That would be like taverns during the American Revolution. True, I mean that the the role of the tavern in the American Revolution is somewhat well documented, and and it is an extension of that too. Um, you know the, the just the idea of pub life and the role of you know locally made beer in pub life, the local pride that wells up from that, um, the connections people make over oh it was a little better yesterday or oh it's, this is a really fine pint and who knows if tomorrow is going to be that good. I mean or that's when's this coming back? When's, and, yeah, yeah. I mean that really gets at the heart of you know the brewery as a community beacon and, and uh, you know, central focus. So one of the things that drove me to write this show, to come up with this idea, was that when you walk into a brewery or a restaurant, you see roughly a dozen people scurrying about running the restaurant. And what you don't see is how far into the community that restaurant or brewery actually goes and touches. So in the case of of Magnolia, um, you know, the connection with Nyman, the idea that you're using organic vegetables, the idea that um, the squid come from Monterey Bay, right? And that, that, you know, all the people Mm -hmm. that that are involved with that, you know, behind the scenes, it's an incredible, it's an incredible thing. And it's, as I got to thinking about it, I'm like, I had not I had not thought of that until just now. Well, there's a couple of real huge consequences to that, and, okay. and I'm just going to set Dave up to to, wing, to to fly with it. One is that if the squid's coming from Monterey, Monterey Bay, yeah. then all of a sudden the clean water issues become more important to the customers who are looking for it the next time. If the crop is coming from a particular place, like for example outside Brussels, the Charbeek cherries face development issues from builders. You know, we have the equivalent in this country where the very specific source of motors' favorite clams or, or, uh, or some... Gravenstein apples. Or some particular, um, <laughs> yeah. some particular uh, type of, um, of hop, you know, um, or a family um, kiln, you know, for, for, uh, for malt. Uh, these things, if endangered, you know, get a response because people make connections with the... Um, products they enjoy in the sources, so it affects land use. But even more profoundly is just the simple act of facing choices that you haven't faced before. You walk into um, Magnolia, and 
if you're not familiar with those beers, those beer styles, all of a sudden you're making a choice. So you're discerning something in an Epicurean kind of way, and that is not what a lot of people are trained to do. People are kind of trained to be passive consumers of the familiar and not to engage in any critical thinking about the choices they're making. So um, that's a pretty hedonistic way of, of uh, experiencing beer. And I don't think that being an Epicurean is an elitist term. I think it's actually kind of slowing things down a little bit and making better long-term choices that are pleasurable. So I think that, that just the fact of choosing and being asked to choose is revolutionary. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that, uh, you know, what's, without overly romanticizing it, I mean, what what's so great about the, the brew pub as a, as a community focal point, and, you know, especially if a lot of that mission at that brew pub is to foster sustainability and, and turn people on to variety and choice and, and things they might not have tried before. Um, you know, the, the beauty of it is that it, it really is the nexus of many different sub-communities and subcultures. You know, you've got the, you know, there have been a lot of things that have been, you know, blossoming in parallel with each other, the sort of artisan cheese movement and small production wineries and, uh, you know, free-range meats and, and sustainable fishing and, you know, care for the stewardship of the ocean and, and all that stuff, um, as well as the, the making of craft beer, which we're all sitting here today for that reason. And, um, you know, a, a good brew pub with all those things in mind, um, is sort of the 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 nexus where you know the consumer and the producers all meet. You know, you you know if you're doing your job well, you're turning on all of these folks in your neighborhood, in your community to the you know you're connecting them with the faces and the names of the people that grew their their vegetables that that raised the animal that went into the the meat that that they're using um, that they're eating. You know, and as well as you know getting to know the you know, the idea of the, the farmer that grew the grain and the, and the folks that grew the hops and the people that malted the grain and the people that, you know, kilned the hops and, and just everybody involved. And what, it's what you're saying is, you know, there's a huge, huge network, much bigger than the, you know, we employ 35 people at Magnolia. And yet, you know, there are probably a cast of thousands involved in getting all of those things, you know, growing them, raising them, catching them, processing them, packaging them, shipping them, getting them all to us. And then we get thousands of customers, a couple thousand people a week come through Magnolia, and a lot of them meet for the first time, you know, at least virtually through the menu and, you know, the description and the talking to the server, and then finally the taste. Um, they get to know the producer, who may be 20 miles down the road or across the country somewhere, but they're getting a sense, and, you know, it takes away, it's an antidote to all the sameness that comes from big box, big box culture, where everybody has been sort of deadened to think that, oh, you know, we just eat for sustenance and we just can pick from A, B, or C, and it doesn't really matter. Right. And, Eating to eat for... Yeah. yeah. Well, in the future, we're all just going to have pills. Our little nutrient no, pills. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You so, know, the, the, no. one, the, one, the, one, the one person that I always love seeing, and I forget what his name is, but he's the farmer who comes around and picks up the grain. Don. Yeah, Don. Yes, yeah. Farmer Don. <laughs> Don Morton. And comes down in the, in the pickup truck, picks up the grain, and I see him... I see him uh, Around at twenty one A, and I see him. I don't know when he comes. I've never seen him at McDonald's. But he comes I'm, in the evenings. Uh, but I just sort of imagine, you know, Farmer Don going back up to Santa Rosa, where he's Snow yeah. County up there, and talking to his other farmer buddies about, you know, he and sometimes Farmer Don's wife's there in the truck with them and with the dog, yeah, yeah, and just that whole and there goes the grain back out to the farm, right? And <laughs> you know, I I haven't he hasn't shown up at uh, Magnolia with with them, but I've seen him come to Twenty First Amendment with steaks that he's butchered from. 
steer that he raised that ate the grain, you know, so you really do get the kind of almost mind-blowing full circle aspect of it. Yeah. So. There are um, foodstuffs that you don't want to really see how the factory farm operates. And when you think about a family farm versus a factory farm, I mean, I know I've been to parts of the country where people were proudly showing me, off, showing off to me the big array of, um, of um, you know, industrial meat products, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a giant cooler saying, well, look at the choices that we have here. And these, you know, you know, less is more sometimes. These are not real cho- choices that if people knew what they were choosing, they wouldn't make that choice. So um, I think that the, um, you know, the, the great thing about this podcast is that people might pick it up anywhere around the world and get a glimpse into a different we way of thinking about these things. Yeah. Australia, Belgium, UK, Japan, Japan, Denmark, Louisiana. <laughs> Even Louisiana. Yeah. Even Louisiana. This so, a, so if you're in Denmark, watch out for the, the big box American. This is culture. a list, and I'll post the link to this. But this is the list of the allowable things that the that an animal can eat at the Nyman Ranch, and not one of those things has. As long as I'm not on the list, you're not on the <laughs> the, the fierce cows. <laughs> right. Would would uh, would really appreciate having Bob in them. <laughs> the fierce cows, <laughs> but don't don't let me loose in the in the corral. It's a, it's a long list, and it's all basically grains and and you know normal foodstuffs, which is very different than what occurs in the factory farm alternative. Yeah. You know, there's there's growth horm- hormone, there's antibiotics, there's there's I don't know what vitamin D two does, but that's one of the things that's not allowed in a Nyman cow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, the animals can't eat other animals. The no uh, fats, blood, or bone bone products cuts down on the mad cow. Exactly, indeed. And it's a it's a crazy list of stuff that they're that they're not allowing. But then you read this, and you're like, well, I don't want any of those things because that's going to go <laughs> in. I'm going to eat the tasty cow, and that's going to go in me. Now, yeah. what's wrong with the what's wrong with my choice? Should I make it for drinking Bud Miller or Coors or any other familiar beverage uh, that's mass marketed to me? What's what's wrong with that if that's my beverage of choice? Well, there's nothing wrong with that per se. However, you you haven't expanded your horizon. You haven't given your local a chance. You aren't. You're okay. So the 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 bottom line of that is that your money is leaving the community and going to some giant corporation instead of staying in the community and being used by literally thousands of people. And what are you putting in your body? When I'm drinking a bud? Yeah. I don't know. Dave? Still well, roughly, barley, still barley water, stuff. hops, and, and yeah. yeast. It is. Does, is it loaded with the same kind of vitamins? And uh... Well, it's a little less of everything, mm-hmm. you know, because we've established, you know, a culture of assertive-flavored, you know, craft beers, which have a lot more of everything in them. But, you know, you can't knock any of those beers too much well i would say that if you're drinking a lot of those beers you're probably getting pretty dehydrated you're probably not treating your body well and if you're drinking maybe more flavorful beer you're going to get more satisfaction probably a healthier set of vitamins and you're probably not going to drink the quantities that you seek you know trying to get some flavor out of it so when i see people pounding those uh, industrial light lagers I say to myself, well, that's a recipe for disaster. It's light, meaning you can drink more, meaning... Meaning you'll, you'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt. Right. Yeah. So when I, when I ask people to approach the whole subject of, uh, of beverage choice in a responsible way, 
I, I think that the whole, the whole business model that those corporations are engaged in does social harm. I personally believe that. But the same way, you go to an English pub, and all the English pubs are low alcohol. And so saying that you drink more because you have lower alcohol, then you, how, does that, how does the English pub or my, my current favorite beer, the Bitter American or Sarah's Ruby, where you go in, I like to have a couple of beers. Well, and I just, I'm having, you know, I go, oh, yay, three, six. But that kind of session drinking is very different. First of all, you're proving my point in a way by saying that the lower alcohol beers are ones you want to go back to. There's a, there's a really, you know, I'm a fan of, of Dave's beers as well. They're really refreshing, low alcohol and That's satisfying. That's good because, you know, you guys would be fighting if you weren't a fan. But the, the, <laughs> the, thing, the, point I'm making, the point I'm making is that here in San Francisco, in a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses in, na- in neighborhoods, you see um, bottles of uh, Bud and the like stacked up. You know, as, you know, you know, uh, folks go out and they try to have um, a session and you see you see um, uh, they're served very cold. Right. They're not necessarily low in alcohol. They're just low in flavor. And they're going down like water, and people are kind of hurting themselves. Moda, you and I, you and I live in North Beach (laughs) and North Beach doesn't have. Um, a, a good penetration of craft beer in a lot of the pubs. And we see a lot of heavy drinking going on in our city's own entertainment district. So while we create this image of a, of a sort of a sustainable nirvana here in the Bay Area, I have to say that that's not what most tourists are going to see. And I'd like to see that situation improve. So we twist their arms. Well, I'm trying to make, <laughs> I'm trying to make the point that if you drink a lot of Budweiser or... Coors Light or, you know, Bud Light or, you know, any of these products that, that have the power of marketing behind them. Or Foster's or Heineken you're acting, or you're, Amstel or Corona or... Then, then even in selfish terms, not in, you know, fully blown um, social engineering terms, uh, just in the here and now, you're probably making a choice that's against your self-interest. You're probably not taking good care of yourself so that you can enjoy the following night's session. I know you guys don't want to bite. If you're in the industry and you don't want to take on the big boys, I, I will. I think, it's, I think it's a matter of monopoly power. I think it does have a legal solution. And as an attorney, I'm committed to getting to that solution. The problem is, is that the marketing budget of the microbrewery cannot, cannot go up against this, this corporate juggernaut that is constantly telling people that this is the product that they are best suited for. This area that we call San Francisco, as elitist as it is, does In a not, good way. Does morally. not does <laughs> morally elitist does not represent the rest of the world in any way. And the thing with this podcast is, which is starts off, we're here to hear we're here to help you and your friends learn to like more than one kind of beer. Because there's a lot of people that are mono beer enabled, and that's the one that they've that's the beer that their father taught them to drink. It's the one that they've always had and that they're not willing to change when they go to a new city. You know, they may be here on, on business. They may come from all around, but they're going to order the beer that they're, that they're familiar with because, A, they don't trust their bartender, they don't trust their friends, and they've had a really bad experience drinking something that was a craft brew because it was so out of character for what they were used to drinking. Because it had, you know, someone says, and I've seen this many times, 
Someone walks into the bar and says, I want it. What beer is the best beer? The person sitting there is going to say, an IPA. So the guy orders the IPA, takes a sip of it, and goes, this is the worst beer I've ever had. Because it's full of flavor, it's full of hops, it's, you know, it's got a lot of body. It's jumping straight into the deep end of yeah. the pool. But 20 years after the American brewing renaissance, and more than that if you count Anchor's uh, entree <coughs> earlier, um, people are seen, even in the Midwest, ordering heifers and ordering fat tire mm-hmm. sure. and ordering you know, certain... Well, fat tire's done an amazing job of marketing a better product so, to that area so i'm arguing well, i'm arguing that as long as as long as the bridge beers exist then the fact that there is some left behind i i'm gonna say it's almost tantamount to smoking when you know it's dangerous making those kinds of choices supports a, a certain brewing culture that we are trending away from and we're i think we're going to take over we're winning that battle we'll look at it this way organic grown beer is now measurable in the amount of beer that's sold. It used to be not even measurable at all, and last year it was 1% of the beer market in the United States. Right, which was enough to get Anheuser-Busch to produce an organic beer now, right. too, I think. Two, yeah. Right, there's two organic beers from, from, uh, from, from, the, from the Giants this year. And so 1%, and that's, that's, very, that's a big part of the market, and... You know, so that that kind of negates the trend that we just saw. You know, with because that market share has got to come from somewhere. That's right. got to come from the bud drinkers or the or the uh, or imports or, or imports or some. You know, somebody switching to that. Well, some of the industry analysts are looking at buds move into distilled spirits and you know the purchases of other types of businesses. They do try to co-opt craft brew by, you know, occasionally having a division that does something that looks like a craft beer or producing a craft beer wannabe. But, um, you know, in this program, we've explored the whole notion of community, the overtones of, uh, of consumer choice. You know, in the San Francisco Brewers Guild, we tried to run numbers about the um, economic size of it, the economic impacts, in order to present those to the city of San Francisco so we could have more inclusion. And it's almost impossible to do. You can start with certain raw figures. You can um, start a spreadsheet going. But the truth is that it goes so far beyond that, and it's so profoundly important that – you know, to have a city like this with this brewing history and still be primarily serving um, industrial, you know, industrial you know mass beers. market beers in in these in the city's pubs is uh, probably not. You know, you talk about sustainability. I don't think that the current model is sustainable. I think that we're coming on so strong that their days are probably numbered, at least from a fifty percent market share point of view. Right. It's it takes a lot of energy to truck liquid around from place to place right and if you're moving liquid from golden colorado to san francisco california with um, people with people taking money all <laughs> yeah. along the way um you know that's one of the things when we got in, into the prohibition show why it was distilled spirits is because it's a lot easier to move a barrel of whiskey than it is to move you know 10 barrels of beer physically right well that was even in the whiskey rebellion days at the you know the early days of this country the you know, the farmers had ex- excess grain crops, and the easiest way to store them and keep them and move them around was to distill it mm-hmm. right, rather than, you know, have to move around bushels and barrels. And Plus, they were also escaping taxes. Yeah. Can anyone right. say Boston Tea Party? Yeah. 
they all they all left and said, okay, we we won't distill rye anymore. We'll distill corn. And by the way, we're moving to Kentucky because that's a frontier state. We're not uh, taxed there. One of the reasons that I'm not for sale as a lobbyist to these big brewers is not that I'm you know radically anti corporate. No, it's more than I'm an American patriot. <laughs> But, you know, getting, getting back, I think we posted something one of the early shows. Uh, Christopher Alexander is a big thinker on, on architecture, and he wrote a book in the mid-'70s called A Pattern Language, which was going to describe every single piece that you need to put together from an entire region down to a chair. And somewhere around pattern, there were 300-something patterns. 47, I think. Somewhere 47 or something like that. One of them was Beer Hall. And explains why a town needs a why a place needs a beer hall. It's a place to gather. It's where people dance and sing and play games and all this. And at that time, he also said in America, it was completely lost. That bars in the seventies were sleazy little dark places for the most part, and all of the the goodness and joviality and community that went with the traditional like German beer hall or the Irish pub was lost. That's all come back in the brew pubs. You there, should, are few little sle- there are very few little sleazy, dark, dank brew pubs. You should see Motors Sim Great City. <laughs> In Motors Sim City, the brewery is huge. And the beer hall is even larger. No, no, no. It's a num- Throughout the community, there are a number of beer halls. It's not one big, huge brewery. Except during Oktoberfest. <laughs> Dave has a very funny story, at least, that you were telling me uh, to meet the brewers ago. About a burger, the Nyman burger, the ranch burger. Oh, right. Yeah. With, uh, <laughs> this is, this is, you might uh, want to tell the audience what Meet the Brewers is. Uh, okay, Meet the Brewers is uh, once every month. I thought uh, it was an Ann, Adam Sandler film. No. Meet oh. the- <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Watch out for the no. FCC on that one. Meet the, meet the Brewers is a once, once a month. It's the third Thursday, I believe. Right. And it's it moves around to different San Francisco breweries or beer places. So they met at City Beer two months ago. They met at Magnolia this last week. And I don't know what's coming up, but I think it might be 21st Amendment. I have to check the, uh, the list. It's alphabetical, and City Beer was a happy stand-in for a brewery that went defunct but is being revived. Actually, there's a new San Francisco. It will come in at the end of the alphabet because it's because it's Wunderbeer, which is the revival of a of a um, of a historic brewery name in San Francisco. There was a Wonder Brewing Company. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and that's that's going to be in the location, the so former location of Eldo's. Uh, Bravo. On uh, 9th and Petro Irving. next. Oh, right. Yeah, Petro. Uh, I guess not. <laughs> I think it's San Francisco Brewing. Okay. We're waiting for Petrero to be revived also. Right. But they took all the gear out. That'll make it tough. Well, anyway, so the idea was is that this this really shows the, 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 the people that are coming into the brewery, they're from all over. They've read the, the guidebook, and it says – you should come to this place because the food's really good, the beer's really good, and then the guy orders the ranch burger, and the expectations are? That it somehow got ranch dressing on it. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, we get that a lot. We still get it. We get it less and less, which is a testament to the way in which the knowledge and appreciation of these small production, well-made foods are spreading around the country. But we still get it. We get the people that, that uh, they don't see Nyman Ranch 
on the menu, they see Nyman Ranch Burger. Right. And it happens at least once a week. There was a time when sushi was considered exotic. Yeah, <laughs> and that you should only you shouldn't eat bait. It was it was five years ago I, on uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. <laughs> One of my friends from college, she lives out there with her husband, and if she's listening, I got to tell this story. They were excited because Wilmington, Delaware, which is actually a pretty major city, uh, almost all the credit card companies are headquartered there because of corporate law. They were just getting a sushi restaurant in town. <laughs> huh. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we're spoiled here. When we get our comments on the show, sometimes we get comments. <laughs> so, Dave, you've been growing. You've, uh, you opened, uh, about nine months ago, you opened a new restaurant. Yeah, just down the street. And that's a different take than the, uh, than Magnolia. It is. It's different, but it's a, very much a kindred spirit. It's very much in keeping with the vision and philosophy that drives Magnolia, which is exactly what we're talking about here today, that sort of appreciation for artisanship and craft production of anything, any food or beverage product. And the focus at Alembic, the new place, tends to be a little bit more around you know, the artisan-produced, craft-distilled spirits and the cocktails that can be made from them, especially when you use fresh-squeezed juices and mixers that you, sometimes bitters you make in house and things like that uh, it's but and we have a nice selection of magnolia beer on tap and then we have a broad selection of imported belgian beers and other small batch beers that we want to celebrate and share with the world but at the end of the day it's all the same i mean it's all the same idea which is that you know somewhere someone is passionately pouring their heart and soul into these products and there are just there are numerous ways and places you can appreciate those things um, but it's, yeah, the Olympic is very much a a, a cousin of, of Magnolia, and philosophically it's right on the same page. It's it's as packed or more packed. It's a little smaller. It's a so little it's, smaller. It's easier so. to pack. <laughs> so you, you have to get there either early or late. Very early or very late, it's true. But but if you get there, you, you have a, you know, you have bartenders that are just as passionate about the cocktail program and the spirit program as the bartenders are at Magnolia about the beer. And it's really refreshing to see that. That's just one of, that's really the most beautiful thing about where we are right now with this whole movement and the, you know, the brew pubs rolling and the craft brewing's rolling is that everybody has finally come together. There's sort of this critical mass. This is like a big happy love story, I guess, but there's this critical mass <laughs> that's been achieved of, you know, all of these different folks all realizing that they've been toiling individually down a certain path, you know, you know, artisan whiskeys or small batch teas or, you know, whatever. And they've all finally come together and you've got places, restaurants and bars and brew pubs and, you know, wherever, where you can find all those things side by side by side and everybody realizes, oh, wait, we were all on the same page all along and we just didn't realize it. You know, we, we do it the same way. We pour our same passion and love into it as you do and we just didn't know that. And it's really, that seems to be why the craft beer movement is booming right now. People that previously didn't know anything about craft beer and they were just same beer drinkers all their lives but maybe they got turned on to another craft product and then they that opened the door for them and they right. got that sense that wait like all those uh, all those bottles on the shelf at my beer store <laughs> maybe those all have really interesting cool flavors that I'm missing out on too and then they go and they delve into that and vice versa you know you got the beer drinker that d- discovers you know artisan whiskey or something and that's it's it's amazing because it really feels like a coming together of everybody and really looking around the room and saying, oh, we're all the same. We all really, <laughs> we all really love 
stuff that's made with a lot of passion and love. Both socially and economically, it's a lot healthier scene now um, than it was, for example, in that sort of second generation of, uh, of craft brewing in the late 90s when it was seen as something maybe to exploit. A lot of people wanted to open restaurants and, yeah, let's stick a brewery in it. There was a kind of a go-go time with a lot of people who didn't share Dave's passion, frankly. Or the IPOs that uh, ruined a couple of places and... I made an analogy earlier to the computer um, industry. The, um, the, um, the web bubble um, would be um, analogous to what we saw before. And I said that Web 2.0, which includes a lot of social networking components and people a little less hubristic, a little less out of control, are able to start companies that are actually producing something of value, that are really doing good, sustainable work, and I think that's what we're seeing in the craft beer world, too. We're seeing that the whole approach to it now is, is um, healthier and uh, less exploitive, you know, much more, much more um, 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 sustainable in terms of the relationships with the customers. Well, even if you take somebody that you can come up with your worst uh, vision of what craft brewing can be distorted into, whether it's a chain or really poorly run bad beer place. If somebody discovers that and gets their feeling for like, oh, there's interesting beer out there, they'll start going to other places and looking for it. So it's sort of, you get, you get no matter how somebody gets hooked on this, once they start discovering, wow, there's different beers and start looking around in different directions and eventually find themselves, um, unless they just have the world's worst poorly soured bad batch of beer at some at some low rent brew pub uh you keep searching it out to use a marketing term from a couple of years ago that tipping point you know has definitely occurred where it's it's very cool now to be seen eating good food or preparing it at home if you have a party at home you know and you're serving well-made beer or even better fresh beer you know uh then um, um, it's it's not seen as uh, as something unusual or geeky, especially on the coasts. It's seen as something you know that has its own elegance, its own desirability, and um, it's approved of socially, at least here in this part of the world. That's a revolution. That's a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great. Big you know that hat you're wearing says host comes with a no, no. I know, but I was just like. I was, <laughs> I was hanging on that because that that was like she Justin doesn't allow dead air. Uh, he's gonna blah 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 whenever he gets a chance. Yeah, to. and we don't curse. That's right, except for that one time, almost, almost. Wait a second, I thought this was a podcast. I could curse as much as I want, right? Yeah, but we're trying yeah, not we, to because we're mature in the, the idea is that I want to be. Oh, didn't I ask for that? I'm sorry. I want to be. I want to be two things. I want to be office compatible, and I want kids to be able to listen to it. When, I agree. You know, when, they're, when their dad's driving down the, the street uh, in the car, taking them to school, you might be listening to beer school, and, like, we're kid-friendly. That's right. And a lot of, uh, a lot of pubs are kid-friendly also. Mm-hmm. Kids um, love pubs. My friend's kids all love Triple Rock because, you know, when you have kids, you move to the East Bay because you'll, you know. Uh, but they love Triple Rock. You get a burger. You can get a burger. Or another one of my friends, I remember uh, – he loved Magnolia. They lived out in the avenues. And one of his first words was French fries. <laughs> and he loved going to Magnolia to get French fries. And then he realized those people who keep walking around, if you ask, bring you food. So every time a server would go by, he'd lean back and go, French fries! <laughs> 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 
you, you know, talking about things being family friendly, I mean, yeah, gastropub, right? Adult beverages. But the truth is that a lot of the local brewers that, that we know are, are fathers, you know, of young children. And I think that they all feel a sense of responsibility that the work that they do reflects well on themselves and their family and their, the future of their children. Dave? Yeah, I, I feel that responsibility. And I, it's, I'm thrilled to be able to uh, have Lily grow up in the Magnolia environment, in a pub environment, and, and for her to interact with her community in, in that way. I mean, since she was, you know, a baby a month old, you know, holding her behind the bar, talking to regulars and customers. You know, she's really spent all of her three and a half years so far spending a lot of time in the course of a week coming down, you know, maybe not, you know, not all day long or anything like that, but she spends a lot of time there and she, she you know, has a different understanding of, of community, I think, because of it um, than people that are often sheltered or, you know, you know, stay kind of, they don't, you know, the idea that a pub might not be a place to bring a kid. And so you wouldn't immerse your child into that kind of environment that's lively, that's full of, you know, 40 or 50 people at one time sitting around drinking beer and, you know, eating a nice meal. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing, and she really loves it. She lights up when she, she probably hears has she's a lot going of friends. There. She has a lot of friends. A lot of people <laughs> are all like, oh, Lily, you know, you're getting so big. And, um, you know, her, I, I would, she's not quite yet articulate enough to really, clue me in on her view of it but you know i i would love to learn a little more about what she thinks of it at this stage in her life but i think that it's a really it's a really great thing for you know to to be able to have kids in a pub environment and i think that the brewers that that i know that our parents i mean i think you know we have there's nothing it's a very small niche small subset of people who think that maybe that the two shouldn't meet you know that there's you know that that pubs and beer or you know beer environments are not kid friendly um, I think that the brewers that I know, I mean, we all are very proud of what we do, and we're very proud to integrate our families into that and vice versa. Um, and I would, I would maintain that socially responsible businesses like Dave's engender socially responsible drinking, where people will take mass transit, and um, basically the concerns of the neo-prohibitionists about drinking and driving are reduced, limited, eliminated, by the uh, healthy environment of a, of a good gastropub. I mean, obviously, people there are eating as well, and um, they're infused with a, with a spirit that's very different from an exploitive business. Yeah, I mean, I think that I feel a lot of responsibility running a pub because of its all of the aforementioned community aspects of it, and, uh, and I feel like a good pub, brew pub or otherwise, you know, owes it to the community that it serves to provide wholesome quality products and, and give people an experience that, you know, you would be comfortable giving to your own family. Um, you know, feeding, you know, it would be, it doesn't feel right for me to to buy one kind of food at Magnolia and serve that to my paying customers and then maybe buy a different kind of food at home and give that to Lily <laughs> and my family. You know, it just, just doesn't, doesn't work for me. And, you know, it's, it's a, yet another kind of testament to like that great community coming together aspect that if you know i can bring lily into magnolia and she can eat there and i know that she's getting you know the best food that i can find um in in that environment and that means that other people have that opportunity when they come in and and i think that's not just a little nice value-added component to what i do i feel like that's a responsibility i feel like i have to do it that way you know so you're not just taking the the frozen bags of uh, of uh, what the poppers, the little pepper popper things, and just throwing them in the fryer. 
That's not what goes on there? That's not what goes on no. there. And so somehow your Those wings... Those are pretty good, though. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, somehow your wings are better than the wings that uh, I might get at Hooters. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to point fingers. Um, yeah, I mean, the idea that you get a free wing, free range chicken wing, yeah, is kind of cool when you think about it. I mean, it's you know, it's nice to be able to eat some comfort food that's kind of fun beer drinking food and know with certainty that it's also you know been handled and cared for in a way that is consistent with the beer that you're drinking as well and that you know there's nothing there than in your experience that is potentially detrimental right and it tastes better and it tastes better it actually tastes like chicken yeah <laughs> there's that oh i can you can give me a taste i love chicken you can give me a taste test on chicken and i'll tell you exactly what chicken it is and where it came from i can't tell you where it came from oh. but i can you know the uh terroir of the chicken yes the soil and that it lived on yes well dave thank you very much for being on the show today Thank you. It's it means a lot that you've come down and braved the traffic and, and did that for us. Well, there was beer here, too. And there was beer here. <laughs> 21st Amendment beer, no less. And it can. And it can. Well, this is the, uh, this is the new sustainable product because you know, there's a whole long list of reasons why a can is better than a bottle. But right. we won't go into it. And we drink their Kool-Aid. So. And I walked <laughs> it over here. Right. I mean, besides drinking it, the pub straight out of the hose. Um, this is pretty much – and by hose, there is a pint glass between where the beer comes out of the hose and my mouth. But uh, That's just a formality. Yeah, that's a formality. This, uh, you know, we didn't Actually, t- I tried that oh. once because my friend had a bar in his apartment. I pulled the tap open and did that. It really wasn't any fun. Yeah, you one, couldn't keep up. One, Motor, Motors does a great job of celebrating the seasonality of beer. And seasonality of beer is very important. When a, when a sort of a, a specialty on the calendar pops up, I, I know motors all over that. <laughs> uh, John, you too. I mean, well, I mean that that's that's well, one of the problems. That, though that's the that's the part about you know when we talk about sustainable community, like there's always a new beer that's coming out. Right. There's always and there's a reason you know like oh and then with that comes the tomatoes and with that comes the the oysters because they're in season or with that comes the um, I don't know. Whatever else is whatever else is out. It's Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's Thanksgiving, Christmas, beer. and there's a humility to not getting everything you want exactly when you want it, everywhere you want it. Right. Yeah, it helps you celebrate the rhythms of life, the natural rhythms that, yeah. in the world, and and um, yeah. It's, well, one of, one of the things that really really upset me was when I have the hawk from Mendocino Brewing. It's available all year long now, and it used to be twice a year. You'd go up to the brewery for either it was. Their anniversary party, and I think maybe Oktoberfest or something. There were two times a year when you had to drive to the brewery to go get this beer, hundred miles north of here, pick it up, bring it back. They had a limit on how much you could get, and that was like, Ooh, we're going. How much eye of the hawk did you get? You go up and get your eye of the hawk, and now you can get it in six packs at the gas station around here. And it's no longer this very special thing that you got like twice a year and held on to. But Bud Select is special. I just got a text from the general counsel of Anheuser Busch. They want to talk to me. um i will say that i i really love the fact that beer unlike wine is a blink or you'll miss it event yeah the the perishability and the the of the moment quality yeah is really adds a lot to the the fun and the ritual involved and everybody loves a little bit of ritual in their lives whether it's you know pertaining to sports or you know food or music you know people love that idea of 
you know, coming down to the brewery and tasting something, you know, right when it comes out and sort of maybe some of the fanfare that goes with that, the celebratory aspect, it's it's just it's woven into people's lives in, in a really fun way. Or even the the quiet sometimes, hey, motor, come here. Oh, yeah. Here's a, here's a clip. We're going to have this on soon. Right. Yeah, the yeah. sneak previews, <laughs> little things the, like the sneak that. previews are always fun, <laughs> especially when it's not even, you know, it's still in the fermenter. It hasn't right. been carbonated. It's just, it's just doing, you know, still bubbling and. And you can see where it's going. I hope the the people that listen to the podcast will take the spirit of of that do it yourself um, message and and just do apply it to everything, not just the beer, but to their other choices in life as well. I really hope that they feel invigorated enough to do that. Well, that's one of the reasons why my I myself live in San Francisco is that I can I don't have to drive everywhere to get to where I'm going. You know, I can take a bus i can take a train i can take a cab i i'm not bound by my auto and that means a lot so whether you're starting a business like a web business or a um, um uh, a restaurant or um or even a brewery the idea that you can um hold true to the spirit of what you think is right as dave has done i think is um a good model a model yeah. that it, people can apply to lots of things well it proves that you know just because just because it's organic and sustainable and all those things, it doesn't cost any more than the place down the street that's backing it up from a truck. Yeah. Like, like Bob said in the beginning, there's a true cost to things. And, you know, when you factor yeah. in all the things you gain from the enjoyment and appreciation of the, you know, the, your community experience with your favorite beer and your local brewery, you know, that there are a lot of things that you gain from that that you can't put a price on probably end up outweighing the dollar amount of savings you'd save on the but what is savings i mean you know the idea is we we have this notion in the united states anyway of i say you know you'll save five hundred dollars i'm like well that's not true i'm not putting it in the bank i just didn't spend five hundred dollars right you know i got it for less money than i was going to pay for it anyway so i got it for less money if I would actually put that money in the bank, then I saved it, but I didn't do that. <laughs> I discovered the hard way. The hidden cost of bad cat food is very high vet bills. <laughs> Good to know. That's why <laughs> I was going to say dead cat. <laughs> That's an even higher cost. <laughs> or if you wake up one day and you look around at your town and why are all the businesses on Main Street closed? Right. That's, I mean, that's the one of the biggest costs of getting, getting your... Uh, Plastic lawn furniture for nine ninety seven instead of fifteen dollars. Plastic lawn furniture nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Well, and it was at and it was at a brew pub in Seattle, and I was sitting there, and I just moved my <laughs> chair just a little bit, and the legs fell off. the The two back legs fell off, and they're like, "What?" You know, and I crashed down. I hit my back of my head on on the steel grating. Uh, the, uh, the wrought iron grating on the that was holding up the balcony, and I'm like, "What can we get you?" I'm like. All these chairs gone. <laughs> like, do you want to? Um, I'm like, I don't want to free anything. I don't want my meal comped. I don't want beers through the night. I want all of these chairs gone. And I'll be back tomorrow to see if you've done it. <laughs> and they're like, You're serious? I'm like, Yeah. I just, I, you know, I'm not gonna sue you. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna report you to the, to the whoever's. I'm just want them gone. And UV like, does terrible things to plastic. And I'm and they're like, okay. So then the next day I came back. I'm like, okay. So I'm that guy, and you didn't change the chairs. I was serious. And then I came back a week later, and the chairs were changed. <laughs> nice. So you know that was my. They said, what can we do for you? I'm like, 
that's it. That's all I ask. Now they're wooden chairs with rusty screws exactly. sticking out. So. <laughs> and splinters. And splinters. And of course you had the power of the podcast to as a as a sort of background yeah, threat. Back- oh, we don't use this as a fully. No, no, no. Pul- we don't. Pulpit. Never. So what's our homework? What is our homework? Our homework is <laughs> Uh, chicken tasting was that was that chicken it? tasting chicken, yes. t- chicken terroir t- tasting between a, right. between a rocky and a foster farms and one of those really oh, really yeah. scary frozen things wow that would be weird homework wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> and all you can do is roast it with a little bit of salt and pepper oh you uh. know you'd totally be able to tell the difference between those chickens oh, yeah. all right well that's our homework somehow there's a segue there to the uh old cock ale from, uh, <laughs> uh, the Colonial days where yeah. you had to steep a, a chicken in your beer. And what would maybe that get the, you? Maybe that's the taste of the maybe test. That's the steep a chicken steep in your beer? Chicken in your beer. Was it, that must have been a good Next tasting chicken. Next time I see a Magnolia, I'm getting a plate of wings. I'm going to drop, drop a wing in the, the beer. Drop a wing in the beer. Well, now when I see you do that, I'll know why. Yep. <laughs> that really is the homework, isn't it? I don't know. The what did the producer come up with this week? Chicken, oh, nothing. Nothing. Producer, <laughs> producer left us... Imagine. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, well, how about how about this? Okay. Think of think of a couple of ways in which you can make choices that help your community. There you go. That's a great. That's, that's a lot better than the chicken tasting. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think so I saved a couple of chickens. Try and figure out where everything you you everything in uh, around you comes from. Just sort of pay attention to that and figure if that's really where you want all your money going. Because money goes someplace. How about finding the brewery that is closest to your house and buying a beer from there? I can't commit to well, that. Well, you know, the problem with that is, is that some people live in <laughs> Missoula, Montana, and that is a far trek. That might, that might be 150 miles for that guy to go. Or they might w- live downwind in St. Louis, Missouri. No, well, but see, then they're going to trek down and they're going to get the tour, and that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. To see the Clydesdales. Yeah. The Clydesdales are always cool. I wonder what happened. They're organic. Hey, Dave, when are you going to get Clydesdales? I don't know. Maybe that'd be the way to take beer down to the Olympic, huh? Yeah, the six blocks. Yeah, it's to need a stable. I'm sure there was a stable in the hate somewhere. I can't find it. Oh look, what about in back of the Met of Olympic? There's that. That we um, could keep them back there. Yeah, then there's a little garden, the Olympic Gardens. Yeah, we're growing our own produce back there. Oh, you are? Yeah. Oh, that was rumor that that was going to happen. Yeah, we have uh, <laughs> herbs growing back there now. They were the easiest thing to kind of get going quickly. Uh-huh. And we're going to grow some other vegetables and some fruit. They're going to wind mm. up in the. Uh, some of them wind up in the food. Some of them wind up as co- cocktail garnishes. Uh-huh. Yeah, kind of. Fun. We have hops growing too. We got a great. Oh, really? Tall wall. We've got a couple of plants that are already about and, two feet tall. And southern exposure. And nice southern exposure. I grew hops for, even though I didn't use them, I grew hops for two years on my roof in North Beach. Nice. And it's amazing. They just go, boom, one day you come back and they're like growing a foot a day. You can almost watch them grow. They yeah. literally sit and see them grow. They grow so fast at this point. In their, like, <laughs> now that's the kind of homework I like. Watch the hops grow. Right. <laughs> okay, so that's it. Get some hops, grow it, and watch it grow. Right. And right. report back. And report back. Okay. Well, Bob Coleman, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Um, great, a great benefit to the show in many ways. We'll have you back soon. 
Is that a threat? Like, <laughs> like, like maybe, Saturday. Like Saturday. <laughs> well, actually, what's I, happening Saturday, John? So oh, this is no, this goes on before Saturday. Yeah, right? this goes on before okay. Saturday. So Saturday at twelve noon, uh, that's Pacific Standard Time on June thirtieth. We're doing our twenty-first show, which is live from the twenty-first Amendment, and it's about the twenty-first Amendment. And so, three shows ago, we did the Eighteenth Amendment. Which talked about uh, which was seven, the seventy-five years leading up to prohibition, and this is the second half of that story. That takes that actually takes, believe it or not, another seventy-five years to undo itself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to commend to the listeners when the show with Justin is released. He's amazing. So uh, I know that that's a, uh, a program that's coming up. So right, home brewing, home brewing part two. Yes. <laughs> so we threw home, home brewing under a bus in the first show. And <laughs> we had some good beer, though. We did have some good beer. That strawberry wheat was fantastic. Amazing. That The guy that made that, I don't know if he made it with real squished strawberries or if he just used strawberry extract. But Or smuckers. Or smuckers. Schmuckers. And I want to say in all seriousness, I'm proud to be on a program with Dave. Dave really does it right. Thanks. Yeah, I've always heard nice things about you, and that's rare when people get drunk and talk about brewers. None of true. All lies. Alcohol-fueled lies. lies. All right, well, we only have one last thing to say on Beer School, and that is... Class dismissed! And then the mics stay on for a while, just to let you know. (laughs) But we can wrap it up as the same. same. Yeah. Well, John, what do you say? Seven, five, sixty-three, Second Street, where it all began. Twelve o'clock p.m. We looked over and we saw a gigantic watermelon. What would we do with it? Talk about it. Talk about it. Beerschool.com. Ah! Their twenty-first episode talking about the twenty-first amendment at the twenty-first amendment. Skip all the babies, birthday parties, and be there. Be there. Soccer practice is not as important. Soccer practice has been canceled. Be there or BJP. It's not like you got to be at church, but if you really needed to be at church, you could be there because Beer School is a church. Go to beerschool.com slash live. Why? Because then you can hear us talking live. Live? Live. Where? At the 21st Amendment. June 30th. At 21A. Beer School Live. Soccer practice is canceled.